This past fall, my growth group spent time studying Paul's epistle to Titus. I know uh, I had another growth group going through Titus as well. And since the fall semester was short, it was only three months, we had six meetings, and the epistle to Titus itself was short. It's only 46 verses. I decided to include a, an ongoing assignment that would, that would cause our minds to be saturated with the contents of the entire letter. And the assignment was this, one of these assignments, but this was the key assignment. Read the entire epistle once a day, at least five days each week. 46 verses, but read it once a day, every day, at least five days a week. And you think about that over a period of three months, what that might do. And I believe that by doing this, we would have the epistle virtually memorized by the end of our three-month semester and would remember its contents for a long time to come. Remember those details. Uh, the Word of God would dwell in us richly as a result of that. And personally, I found it to be a very beneficial exercise. And one passage in particular that was uh, really a personal highlight for me in particular and, and continued resonating in my mind after the semester concluded was Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. And I find that every time I read this passage, it, it grips me. It makes me pause and wonder, it, it humbles me, and then encourages me and gives me hope. So this morning, I, I want to share this passage with all of you so that you may be blessed by it in the same way I have been uh, blessed by it. So uh, if you haven't already started turning, go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles to Paul's epistle to Titus and chapter 3, where it That'll be our text this morning. And this is the word of the Lord given through the Apostle Paul, who wrote this epistle to Titus, one of his trustworthy companions and co-workers in gospel ministry. Paul's purpose in writing this letter to Titus was, first of all, to inform him of the task he was entrusting him to accomplish on his behalf on the island of Crete. And secondly, to give him instructions and guidance on how to carry out that task. Well, what was the task? Well, the Apostle Paul was asking Titus to put the churches in Crete into order. And he was to do this by, one, appointing elders in each of the local churches. Two, rebuking false teachers who were disrupting the churches. And three, teaching the churches what accords with sound doctrine. The aim of his teaching was to equip and motivate the saints to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives by God's grace and devote themselves to good works. That's really the, the big picture of, of Paul's message in Titus. And in chapter 2, the teaching is focused on personal godly conduct within the church, and at the beginning of chapter 3, there's instruction on godly conduct towards those outside the church. That is, unbelievers, non-Christians, those who don't believe the gospel and are continuing to live in rebellion against God. And Paul told Titus to remind the Christians on Crete at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, he, uh, to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, 
to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Perfect courtesy toward all people. In other words, Christians are to be a blessing in society. And as those who have come to have peace with God through faith in Jesus, they are to live according to that peace. They are to do good and to be gentle and courteous towards non-Christians who don't know the peace of God. The Apostle Paul then explains why. And this leads us to our passage for this morning, verses 3 through 7 in chapter 3. So let's read it. Paul wrote to Titus his explanation. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others. One another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This passage, it provides us with a sobering reminder and a brutally honest description of who we once were and what we were like when we were separated from God and dead in our sins. Also, in contrast to this sobering reminder of the spiritual darkness of our former days in verse 3. This passage also provides us with a joyful reminder of the incredible work of God in saving us and transforming us so that we are no longer who we once were. That's genuine salvation. There is a transformation. You are no longer who you once were if you are in Christ, if you've been truly saved. And we can summarize and outline the text in the following way. In verse 3, we are reminded of who we once were. In verses 4 through 6, the bulk of the text, we are reminded of what God has done. And then finally, in verse 7, we are reminded of who we are now. Who we are now. These three reminders will help us maintain a gospel-centered perspective on our lives, and on the lives of others, and motivate us to be devoted to good works, which, like I said, was the the thrust of Paul's message to Titus to give to the churches in Crete. It's God's will for them. It's his will for us. So in Paul's description of the past in verse 3, he speaks in general terms and unapologetically lumps all Christians together including himself, including himself. Remember, we is what he says. Now, regardless of our specific circumstances, customs, and the many ways in which we manifested our rebellion against God, quite a variety, isn't it? 
Our general conduct before God saved us is accurately summed up in the qualities listed by Paul. I mean, there's some uniqueness to your own personal depravity in your former life, your own manifestation of your rebellious heart towards God. And yet, when we read verse 3, it is a general and accurate summary of all of us. Whether you formerly lived a self-indulgent, unprincipled, irreligious life, or whether you lived a disciplined, principled, super-religious life, like the Apostle Paul. Remember, he's in this category too. Or whether you fell somewhere in the middle. The reality of your past, along with the rest of us, is that you were so very lost and wretched and hopeless outside of knowing Christ. We all were born in sin. And we all started with the same nature, with that self-serving, depraved, and rebellious heart. It's all of us. And we inherited that from our first parents who rebelled against God and became corrupt by their sin. Well, how does Paul describe this in verse 3? Well, he gives us a list of unrighteous qualities that once characterized our living. Yes, each and every one of us. This is our former life in a nutshell. Verse 3 is our former life in a nutshell. Paul said we ourselves were once or formerly foolish. The Greek word for foolish here literally is a word that literally means without understanding. No understanding. Lacking it. Even if someone is intelligent and well-educated and knows a lot of stuff, that person is ultimately without understanding because he or she is living in unbelief towards God, our creator, and is building his or her own worldview apart from the truth of God's word. Elsewhere, Paul described this state of unbelief as being darkened in one's understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that stems from one's hardness of heart. Ephesians 4.18. Paul then says that we ourselves were formerly disobedient. In other words, we were, well, we were rebellious. We didn't like the idea of being under authority. We didn't like the idea of being accountable to God and truly submitting ourselves to his word. Because again, even the religious person, even the nominal Christian, really didn't like the idea of submitting to the word of God. Just as lost. Rebellious. Disobedience. So even if we were religious, we were religious, you know, on our own terms. Our hearts were resistant to God's word, not receptive to it. I mean, sure, maybe a little piece here and there that I'm, I'm okay with, but not the whole counsel of God, not the wisdom of God, not the authoritative word of God coming to bear on all of life. Even in Paul's case, as a Pharisee, his ultimate devotion was to the religious traditions and commandments of men that obscured 
and even contradicted God's word. So it's, it's still disobedience. Paul then says that we ourselves were formally led astray. That is, we were continually being misled. It was an ongoing thing, continually being misled, continually being led astray. We were following the reason of our depraved and deceitful hearts. We were following the teachings and worldly wisdom of people who were just as lost and deluded and separated from God as we were. We ourselves were spiritually blind and we kept reaching for the hands of blind guides. We were not anchored by the life-giving truth of God's word. And Paul continues with what by now you're thinking feels like an epic beatdown of your ego. Paul continues and says that we ourselves were formerly slaves to various passions and pleasures. We couldn't help but give in to the pull of our own sinful desires, that is, the various lusts of our flesh, our eyes, our pride. And we were constantly chasing after the earthly things that we believed would satisfy those desires and make us feel good and fulfilled and happy. It was an endless cycle of being driven by cravings and enamored by stuff, all of which was temporal and fleeting. And yet that's what drove us. Slaves of various passions and pleasures. And guess what? We could do no other. We couldn't. It was, this was not freedom. Like, I, I'm living my life. I'm doing what I want. Yeah, I think. Uh, no, it wasn't really freedom. It was slavery. It was being a slave to our own desires and lusts and cravings. And it kept us on the road that leads to destruction. That's not freedom. And Paul's not done. He says that we ourselves were formerly passing our days in malice and envy. No doubt this was the result of being slaves to various passions and pleasures. If you think about it, slave to your own passions and pleasures, there's, there are consequences. There's fruit from that. And the result of that, if you're beholden to your passions and pleasures, bound to them, there's malice and envy that wells up within you. Malice is an attitude of ill will towards others. It is the desire for others to suffer harm. And envy is the feeling of resentment towards others because they have something you want for yourself, whether it's stuff or money or success or honor or privilege and so forth. They got something, and you resent them for it because you want that. And if you're a slave to various passions and pleasures, then you're going to be predisposed to having ill will towards anyone whom you see as somehow getting in the way of you satisfying your desires. You are getting in the way of my personal pursuit of happiness. You're also going to be discontent and resentful towards others on a regular basis because you will continually see people who have the kinds of things you're slavishly chasing after. Miserable existence. This is who we ourselves once 
were. Malice and envy were regular companions in our self-centered hearts. One commentator wrote the following. He said, allowing our conduct to be dictated by a wide variety of personal passions and pleasures, the inevitable result was our enslavement to them. Never finding true personal satisfaction in their pursuit, we lived our lives in the grip of the antisocial forces of malice and envy, harboring an attitude of ill will towards others and enviously begrudging others their good fortune. He colors it in a little bit. Finally, Paul concludes, there, there is an end to this. This isn't an exhaustive list. But Paul concludes his description of our former life in this way. We were hated by others and hating one another. Behind the phrase, hated by others, is just one Greek adjective that means despicable. We were despicable. That is, we were despised by others because of our own corrupt and dishonorable behavior. That's what that means. Not victims. Despised by others because of our own wickedness, because of our own dishonorable and corrupt behavior. Our own self-centered, self-serving, sinful hearts led us to be vile, offensive, and unpleasant in the sight of others. And we didn't really care. The heart that is inclined towards rebellion against God is self-serving. I don't care, ultimately, about others or the effect I have on them. I'm in it for me, everything. I'm in it for me. We offended and aroused hatred in others, and we hated them right back. Now, that was a mouthful, a stomachful, lot to digest there. But if you believe the description in verse 3 is either inaccurate or exaggerated concerning you personally, if you think you were, you know, some kind of exception, then you're self-deceived. Your heart is not right before God. If that is you, your heart's still not right before God. You are still lost. You are not a true Christian, but a false convert. True Christians... By the grace of God, those who are truly saved are those who have acknowledged the depth of their own personal wickedness before God, their own personal wickedness before God, and their desperate need for his merciful forgiveness and deliverance from their sins. True Christians, those who are truly saved, are those who have in genuine humility and sorrow over their own sin, cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They are not those who deep down think that they're not so bad. They are not those who deep down think, if they're being honest, uh, that they would say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, those other people. If you remember our Lord's teaching on that. The one who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner in genuine sorrow, is the one who goes home justified. Verse 3 is a description of everyone in their natural state. 
Verse 3 is indeed an accurate description of all of mankind, born in sin, spiritually dead, and separated from God. This is the truth. You heard another accurate description earlier during the scripture reading. That was not coincidence. Hands selected, complimentary passage. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul again, see he doesn't just do this in this letter. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we once were. We were spiritually dead, living in sin, following the course of this world, living in the passions of our flesh, separated from Christ, having no hope, and having no real relationship with God. But then everything changed. What happened? Well, did we wise up? Did we turn our lives around? Did we, on our own initiative, turn away from our sinful ways and and start genuinely seeking a relationship with God? Is that what happened? Not at all. It wasn't us at all. Everything changed because of what God had done. Paul reminds us of this in verses 4 through 6. You can see where the emphasis lies. The focus is on the work of God. We were set in our sinful ways and speeding down the highway that leads to eternal destruction and hell. But, Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Goodness and loving kindness did not well up within us. They came from God. Salvation was completely outside of us. It was not our doing at all. It was solely the merciful work of God who gets all the glory. The Greek word translated as goodness here is krestates, and it refers to the quality of being helpful or beneficial. It is goodness, kindness, or generosity. And then the other term, the Greek word translated as loving kindness, is philanthropia. Sound familiar? Philanthropia, which is a term we've adopted in our own language, philanthropy. It is a compound word that That means love for mankind. Paul connects the timing of our salvation with the appearing of God's kindness and philanthropy. Now this appearing occurred in, you could say in two senses. The kindness and philanthropy of God appeared in a historical sense with the coming of Christ into the world to make atonement for the sins of all whom God had graciously chosen for salvation. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 say this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, verses 6 or 8. For while we were still weak, understatement right there, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love, he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's kindness and philanthropy appeared in a historical sense in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, who accomplished our salvation through his death or resurrection. In addition to this, God's kindness and philanthropy then appeared to each and every one of us in a personal sense through the gospel. Christ came 2,000 years ago. He came into the world. This is the appearing of the, the kindness and philanthropy of God. He accomplished redemption for sinners. But then kindness and philanthropy appears to each and every sinner whom God has chosen to save has appeared to them personally through the gospel message. That is God's good news for sinners concerning his gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. I didn't live 2,000 years ago, right? We weren't there for the, the historical appearing, but we had the, the grace, the loving kindness of God appear through the proclamation of the gospel, the message concerning Christ and what he's done for sinners. Salvation has come. Through the gospel, God granted us faith and opened our spiritual eyes to behold Jesus as he truly is. That's what happens. Our sovereign Lord and all-sufficient Savior, no longer just this, you know, historical figure, you know, good teacher, prophet, philosopher, right? Or son of God, but saying that, but not really believing that, right? God granted us faith and opened our spiritual eyes to behold him as he truly is, and we truly believe he's our sovereign Lord and all-sufficient Savior. This is when the historical reality of God's kindness and philanthropy became apparent to us personally. Our eyes were opened, and it was at this moment that God saved us. That's the moment of salvation. And, of course, there's no one doing that, as was just testified earlier. Paul makes it clear that God did not save us because we were good. Or because we at least weren't as bad as other people. It's like, okay, they're not as bad. I guess I'll save them. God did not save us because we you know, made an effort towards doing what is right and good. The thought that we could somehow be righteous by our own effort was itself sinful arrogance. Even that was rebellion. God did not save us because of any so-called good that we ourselves had done. Everything we were doing only proved that we were wicked rebels at heart and worthy only of God's condemnation. God says, or Paul says in verse 5 that God saved us. Why? Well, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We were bankrupt in that sense, but according to his own mercy. 
the reason why any of us are saved, the reason why any of us are now trusting and following after Jesus as our Lord and Savior, instead of continuing to live in sin and reject his authority over us, is because God had mercy on us. That is it. We made no positive contribution. None of you made a positive contribution. God gets all the glory in our salvation. This is repeated over and over in Scripture. In the rest of verse 5 and in verse 6, Paul then explains how God saved us in that moment that we received his incredible mercy. He explains the how. God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We were stumbling about through life in spiritual darkness and in slavery to sin, and God saved us. He mercifully, at a point in time, sent his Spirit to indwell us and regenerate us, that is, to give us spiritual life. We were spiritually dead. We were made alive by the Spirit and by the Holy Spirit to renew us, that is, to give us a new nature. What was the former nature? Rebellion. The heart was, our hearts were inclined towards sinful rebellion. They had a natural bent. So everything we did was driven by that. And when God poured out his spirit upon us and gave us spiritual life, he also gave us a new nature, a new heart, no longer bent in hard-heartedness in rebellion against and unbelief against God. This life-giving and transformative work of the Holy Spirit is why we are no longer who we once were. It's why we are no longer the people described in, in verse 3. You see, that's genuine salvation. It isn't just that I decided to follow Jesus. I asked Jesus into my heart. Where's the power in that? You have to be transformed radically. You have to be given life that you don't have. You have to be given a, a new heart. You don't do any of that. Honoring God with your lips does nothing. The only genuine profession of faith is, is the one that rises up from a transformed person who's been made alive by the Holy Spirit. And the proof will tell in time. Direction, not perfection, but also will endure to the end because God has done a work. Paul describes this moment of salvation uh, metaphorically as a washing. The Spirit was poured out, he says, right, in keeping with that imagery. The Spirit was poured out, and our guilt and vileness before God because of our sins was washed away. And our sins could be washed away. Why? Because Jesus willingly bore their punishment in full in our place when he suffered and died on the cross and then rose again. That's the only reason why we could be washed. 
That is why Paul says that God poured out the Holy Spirit on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. And there's a similar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, also written by the Apostle Paul. But this is the word of the Lord through him. And it reads this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that was not an exhaustive list. Add in any form of rebellion against God. None will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you. Remember the list I just read. Let's be reminded of that. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, Revilers, swindlers, such were some of you. But you were washed. That's what he says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is transformation. That is salvation. There's no such thing as a, a gay Christian. There's no such thing as a drunkard Christian, right? Those whom God saves, he has broken the bonds of their own slavery. He's given them a new nature. He's given them power and ability to now live for him and to turn from their sin. They're no longer slaves to those sins. It doesn't mean that they never sin again. But living in sin, it identifies you, right? And in that list we read, well, some of those categories of sin, one in particular, they have parades and celebrate their high-handed rebellion against God, and it's their identity. But God, if he saves a person, they are no longer who they once were, and now they belong to God. And they will look at that and say, that's who I once was. It is filth, it is vile, and I've been called to better things now to glorify God in my life, and he's given me the means to do that because he's given me his spirit and his word and a new heart that is inclined and desires to lovingly obey him. Now, when we look at our passage, what God has done and what Paul had said, we can clearly see the Trinity is on display. There's one God, and he's eternally existent as three distinct persons who are they're all one in essence, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. All three persons of the Godhead together have brought us salvation. We see that in our passage. The Father chose us for salvation beforehand according to his own mercy, his free choice. And A helpful note would be, again, when you think of salvation, it's not about your choice at all. I chose Jesus. No, you didn't. God chose you. God chose to have mercy on you and to grant you faith that you might believe and trust in Jesus. The Father chose us for salvation beforehand according to his own mercy. 
The Father sent his Son, and the Son accomplished our salvation by becoming a man and making full atonement for our sins through his death and resurrection. The Son returned to the Father, and the Father, through his Son, sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit activated our salvation by applying the benefits of Christ's work to us personally. That's how salvation has worked. That is God's salvation. We were spiritually blind, but then in this merciful moment in time, our eyes were opened, and we came to personally know the kindness and philanthropy of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been mercifully saved. And who are we now? Well, Paul reminded us in verse 3 of who we once were when we were separated from fellowship with God. Paul then reminded us in verses 4 through 6 of what God had done to bring us into fellowship with himself, to reconcile us to himself. And finally, in verse 7, Paul reminds us of who we are now. If you are in Christ, this is who you are now. Paul explains the results of God's mercy upon us. He says, we are justified by his grace. And in light of that, we are now heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To say that we're justified means that God has declared us to be righteous, not because we have any righteousness of our own, but because through our faith in Jesus, he has graciously given us or credited us with righteous standing before him that is based solely upon the sufficient atoning sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. He's declared us righteous. He's credited us with righteous standing as a gift. And this gracious gift of righteousness is, as Paul described in Romans, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3, 22 to 24. And in Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So to say that we have been justified means that God, the judge of all the earth, has pronounced that we who are transgressors of his law, we're lawbreakers, but yet trusting in Jesus, we have been cleared of all charges. To put it in legal terms, and is a legal term. The judge of all the earth pronounced that we lawbreakers who are trusting in Jesus now have been cleared of all charges, and he has declared us not guilty. We can only boast then, in Jesus. He took our sins and punishment upon himself so that our guilt would be taken away. And we would receive a full pardon from God and be spared from eternal judgment in hell. Not only have we been spared from the eternal wrath that we deserve, but we have also been given what we don't deserve, 
the glorious inheritance of eternal life. We see that in verse 7 as well. Well, Paul wrote in Romans, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Scripture says that God the Father appointed the Son, his Son, heir of all things, of everything. Scripture says that all things were made through the Son and for him. And he will return to establish his kingdom of peace on this earth, and he will then make all things new by creating a new heavens and a new earth in which God will dwell with his redeemed and glorified people and be their light, and they will see his face and worship him and joyfully reign with Christ forever. This is the hope of eternal life. That's the future for the one who's in Christ. That's the inheritance. It's not floating on a cloud somewhere, right? I just described to you the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is going to bring it, and those who are his will enter it. And on into glory. So much beauty, so much peace, and unimaginable good things to look forward to for the one who is mercifully saved and in Christ. An heir according to the hope of eternal life. If you have repented of your sins and are trusting in Jesus, this is your inheritance. It's your inheritance. I and mean, we can think about, you know, being wise stewards of our finances now and, and saving up and, and one day giving an inheritance to our kids and stuff. Yeah, that's, that's all nice and certainly do that. It's temporal though. It can all be taken away. It doesn't last. But if you're in Christ, you have infinitely more than you can imagine, Right? Don't lose sight of that. You are an heir. Why why do we have this inheritance? Because we've been mercifully saved. We deserve no good thing, and yet by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, God has graciously made us heirs of everything. There's one... um, commentator who had written this, I I thought it was helpful at this point. He says this, the the Christian is a man for whom the best is always still to be. He knows that however wonderful is life on earth with, with Christ, the life to come will be greater yet. The Christian is the man who knows the wonder of past sin forgiven, the thrill of present life with Christ, and the hope of the greater life which is yet to be. Live in light of that. So in conclusion, the reminders of who we once were in verse 3, what God has mercifully done in verses 4 through 6, and who we are now in light of what he has done in verse 7, These reminders have been given to us so that we might walk in humility and be gracious towards all people, including non-Christians. Again, remember the verses leading up to this. 
This, this is the application, right? We're equipped with this knowledge of the glory of our salvation so that we might walk in humility, be gracious towards all people. We're, we're, the only difference between us and, and those who are in active rebellion against God is he had mercy on us. The only side of that. Walk in humility. And this also is given to us so that we might, if we read on, if you just notice, right after verse 7, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things that he just said, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So it's given to us so that we might walk not only in humility, but also in joyful gratitude and devote ourselves to good works for the glory of God, our Savior. Your life has been purchased to live and honor him, to glorify him by good works. Now, good works don't save you. God saves you mercifully, but he saves you unto good works. He's prepared those for you to walk in. That's why he saved you and why he hasn't taken you right up to heaven. Saved, come on, out of that world. No, he saves us and has a calling for us to walk in good works, glorify him, make him known, live according to his truth, be salt and light in this fallen, sin-cursed depraved world that is passing away. So let this passage, well, let this be a passage that you return to often, I would say. It's good medicine. Let it help you maintain a gospel-centered perspective on your life and on the lives of those around you. Let it motivate you to devote yourself to doing what is right and good in God's eyes as is revealed in his word. We have been mercifully saved to live for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you just for helping us to, to, to see clearly what you have truly done in us. Your work is salvation, and just the, the richness of your mercy and grace. We deserve no good thing. We're reminded of who we once were, and sometimes we... We downplay it or we, we don't think about it enough just to recognize how great the chasm was between us as wretched sinners and you as a holy God. And yet you bridged the divide by your mercy, by your sovereign choice. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to bridge the divide by accomplishing our redemption, by taking our sin upon himself and paying the price in full so that we would no longer be condemned but forgiven and brought into fellowship with you, harmony with you. And you bridge the divide by pouring out your spirit and giving us life and applying the benefits of Christ's work to us personally and joining us to him so that we are members of his body and we are members of your family. We rejoice and the fact that it is by grace we have been saved. And Lord, we pray that you would let this humble us and be gracious towards all people, uh, to see them in light of eternity, uh, to never get to a place where we are proud or think highly of ourselves. Instead, Lord, help us just to be reminded that we are standing in grace. And it's only by your grace that we're saved. And it's only by grace by your grace, that we can even begin to live lives that are 
honoring and pleasing to you, um, to walk in your ways and your wisdom, Lord. Thank you for sa saving us. And Lord, I, I pray that you would open the eyes of those who are blind right now, who may have excused their sin or maybe loved their sin. Lord, pray that you're, you would convict them of that, that they would see it as, as sheer folly, as madness to want to continue on a path that leads to eternal destruction. I pray that you would open their eyes, you'd mercifully save them as well, that they might see Jesus as he truly is, all-sufficient Savior, sovereign Lord, the only one who can grant them forgiveness by his own work and bring them into relationship with you so that they might have life and hope. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a reminder of your greatness in all things. May we honor you with our lives. Help us, Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of you. And we now will respond in gratitude as we continue to sing praises to you for all that you've done. Amen.